Newsflash, you can really like two things separately and not like it if they're mixed together. Good morning. Good Wednesday morning to you. I'm Shane Satterfield from Sifted, and this is Good Morning Gaming for February 23rd, 2022. The show is in our patrons' feeds bright and early every weekday morning, and it's delayed a couple of days for everyone else. You can find our flagship show, Game Face, by searching your favorite podcast service. You'll find the podcast versions of the rest of our content in the same feed you found this. If you'd like to support what we're doing, head to patreon.com sifted. Video games are not Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, a concoction of two things most people like that become heavenly when spliced together. But this doesn't always work in video games. Enter 2K Games securing the LEGO license for sports games. LEGO's exclusive license with WB Games is running out, and so the sharks are circling. The new deal will kick off with a soccer game to be released around the World Cup later this year, which will be developed by Sumo Digital which is just finishing up the latest WWE wrestling game. That's not a lot of time to create a quality product, and it's even harder when the two ideas just don't mix well. Sumo has never created a sports game in its entire history, unless you count professional wrestling, which I don't. Despite what TT Games has done with the IP, tackling everything from Batman to Star Wars, LEGO characters have a notoriously limited and awkward moveset. There's a certain charm to that aesthetic, but I can't think of a worse fit for it than sports video games. Even as an avid sports fan and sports game player, this concept has virtually no appeal to me. When I think of a Lego soccer game, I think of awkward animation, I think of toys acting strangely out on a real grass pitch. Now I get it. The Lego video games have been delving into this aesthetic for a long time now. And again, there is a certain charm to it. But sports games are so reliant on frame-accurate animation, smooth animation, animations that you can learn to count on, anticipate for, and react upon. It's hard for me to see a Lego game where the characters have a handful of points of articulation and feel like the game's going to play smoothly or reliably for people who are seriously competitive. Now I get it. Lego games generally are targeted at kids. And most kids probably aren't going to pick up the new Madden game and learn all the ins and outs of the NFL game and eventually excel at playing that game. They do need starter games. So I'm not, I'm not against the concept of arcade-style sports games. In fact, I love them. A new Mario Strikers game is coming. I'm excited for that. The powerful pro baseball franchise from Japan. I've been a big fan of that in the past. I was a huge fan of NHL hits. I was a huge fan of NFL Blitz. I was a huge fan of all EA Sports Bigs games that came out for that four or five year stretch where they were a big thing. So I'm not against the overall concept of a more accessible style of sports game to appeal to people who maybe aren't hardcore sports fans or who are young and are just figuring things out. I totally get it. I still think Lego is a terrible match for sports video games. Visual Concepts is also working on an open-world Lego driving game. This is a case where the studio isn't a great fit for the genre because it's never made a racing game in its history. This is the open-world driving game with a major license we mentioned on GMG last week. 
A third LEGO sports game is also in development based on a major sports franchise, which could mean basically anything. The bottom line is, 2K is spending a lot of money to secure the LEGO license, and I cannot think of a worse application of it than in sports video games. This deal has two great tastes that don't taste great together written all over it. Now for a couple more stories from the top of your SIFs. Bloomberg's Jason Schreier is reporting today that the game after Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, which is set to be developed by Treyarch, has been delayed to 2024. This will make 2023 the first year without a new Call of Duty in two decades. Instead, Treyarch will be working on a free-to-play game launching in 2023 that is separate from Warzone 2. Okay, this is crazy. Obviously, the elephant in the room here is that Activision Blizzard was just purchased by Microsoft. It's really hard to deny that there's some sort of outside influence having an impact on this decision making. Call of Duty, whether you like it or not, whether it's great or not, will sell 20 million copies every year. It's written in stone. It's just going to happen. For Activision Blizzard to take a year off, and for all intents and purposes, Microsoft allowing them to take a year off, allowing 20 million copies of a game that sells for 60 bucks to not be sold. It's insane. <laughs> it really is insane. If this is the new Activision Blizzard under the Microsoft banner, you've got to wonder if fans are going to like it. Fans want a new Call of Duty every year. If they didn't want it, they wouldn't buy it. Now, granted, Call of Duty Vanguard sales were down pretty significantly this year, and I would argue that it's probably the least exciting Call of Duty since Call of Duty Ghosts, and that game was not bad, but just exceedingly average. And that's about the same thing I'd say about Call of Duty Vanguard as well. It's not a bad game, but it's definitely not a great game either. And still, I guarantee you, it will get close to selling 20 million units before it's all said and done. So, is this Microsoft listening to the development teams who have been on the Call of Duty wheel for the last decade plus? Is this Microsoft listening to Treyarch, who used to make its own games and obviously was on the hook to create the game in 2023, but also has been stretched really thin over the last half decade or so, as it's been called in to rescue Call of Duty games, to create the zombies mode for Call of Duty games, to pitch in with multiplayer work on the Call of Duty games, all the while it's supposed to be creating its own Call of Duty game where it does tend to do everything and gets limited support from the other studios that work on the franchise. I really think that this is Activision Blizzard exhaling saying, you know what, we've been grinding along all these years, making sure we have a Call of Duty every year that people will be happy with. And now that we've been acquired, that pressure isn't there. Yet. <laughs> now, if Activision Blizzard has done this on its own, you do have to wonder what Microsoft thinks about it. Does Microsoft think that, oh, they get purchased and now they want to slack 
they want to be more humane in their game development. And I'm not arguing against that at all. The people who have been making Call of Duty over the last couple decades, they they deserve gold stars. What they've been doing is just unheard of, one, and really not feasible. So I do lean a little bit in that direction that this is Activision Blizzard no longer on the hook for its financials every year saying, you know what, let's just do something that's humane for once. And honestly, after the trouble that Activision Blizzard has had with how it treats its workforce, maybe even Microsoft would be okay with that. But there's another layer to this as well. And that is that Treyarch is working on a free-to-play game that is launching in 2023. And this game is separate from Warzone 2, which is reportedly launching at the end of the year. So Treyarch was supposed to create next year's Call of Duty, but instead it's working on some sort of free-to-play product. Why? Why? (laughs) Why would Activision Blizzard want to have two free-to-play shooters at the same time? Warzone's interest has waned over the last 18 months or so. Its numbers have gone down. Less players are playing it. Less players are engaging with it. But that's why Warzone 2 is coming. That's the remedy to the slumping engagement of the first Warzone. You have a sequel coming. Why would you release Warzone 2, again reportedly this November, and then release another free-to-play game 12 months later? All it's going to do is split the user base and siphon people off from your other free-to-play game. Now, it would make a little bit more sense if Treyarch were working on a free-to-play game that is not a shooter or that is not tied to Call of Duty at all, although that would be a terrible decision, it would make more sense financially and fiscally for Activision Blizzard. As of right now, this reporting from Jason Schreier has my mind all twisted up because none of it makes sense to me right now. And who knows when we get more updates on why this has happened or what Treyarch's free-to-play project is is coming next year. I don't know. Just looking at everything at face value right now, none of it makes sense. Sony finally unveiled PlayStation VR today. And when I say that, I don't mean the specs and how powerful it will be and what and what type of lenses it will have or any of that stuff. It showed the actual physical final product today in a series of photos. And the first thing I would say about it is that it looks a whole hell of a lot like PlayStation VR 1. Now, PlayStation VR 1 did have like a big black plate on the front, and the front of PlayStation VR 2 is all white, but otherwise, it looks very similar. That can be a good thing, and that can be a bad thing. It can be a good thing if someone had a great experience with the first PlayStation VR, and they see this one, and they associate this one with the old one, and they know immediately that it's for a PlayStation console, That part of it is good. The part that is bad, though, and I would argue that the majority of people who bought PlayStation VR feel this way, is that they were unhappy with PlayStation VR 1 for myriad reasons. It could be the games weren't good enough. That's certainly debatable. I mean, I can't think of a single killer app for PlayStation VR 1. 
It could be that it made them deathly ill because the technology wasn't quite there. I fall into that camp. I have enjoyed the time that I was able to spend with PlayStation VR, but I could only play it in 10 minute bursts. And if I spent more time than that with it, I became horribly ill. I would have to lay on the couch for like an hour before I started feeling normal again. And I would argue most consumers fall in those latter two camps. I I can't think of too many people who bought PlayStation VR and said, wow, that was worth every penny. I loved it. In fact, I can't remember anyone saying that. Is it nice that it matches your PlayStation 5? Well, it matches your PlayStation 5. I just got black plates, console covers, they call them, for my PlayStation 5. And so now my PS5 is all black and PlayStation VR is predominantly white with accents of black. So it's not going to fit and match my console, but it will match most of yours. So that's probably a smart move. Most most people have not purchased console covers for their PS5 to change its color. I am certainly in the minority, particularly when you realize they cost 50 bucks for a couple pieces of plastic. They probably make those things for $2 and they sell them for 50 bucks. But that's another story. <laughs> PlayStation VR 2 also has the texture on it, where if you look close, it's actually little triangles, X's, and circles, and squares, just like the PS5. So just another way that it matches its big brother console or big sister console. One thing I like a lot about PlayStation VR is how it feels when you wear it. There's no pressure points. Some... VR HMDs, I've put them on, and the crown of my head will hurt, or the top of my forehead will hurt, or it puts too much pressure on the back of my head and I slowly get a headache. I never had any of those problems with PlayStation VR 1. And, in good news, PlayStation VR 2 is following the same sort of weight balancing and design as the first, so that's good. One problem I did have with PlayStation VR 1 is that I would sweat like a maniac when I used it. Even if I was just sitting still and just playing a typical action game and not moving. And to me, one of the big selling points of VR is that they're great exercise equipment. It's a really good way to keep your mind engaged while you work out. And so PlayStation VR 1 was not great for that because... I would sweat sitting still, and when I would move around to VR games, my HMD would become drenched in sweat. Well, Sony is addressing that too. It has created better venting for PlayStation VR 2, so it is tackling one of the bigger issues. And then another big issue was the lack of dedicated controllers for the first PlayStation VR. People were forced to purchase PlayStation Move controllers, and they didn't work well. And PlayStation VR 2 has legitimate finger-tracking motion tracking, VR controllers. So in all, it looks like a pretty significant bump up from PlayStation VR 1, and obviously the guts of it way more powerful. 4K with a high refresh rate, because that is the X factor. That is why I would often be sickened by the first PlayStation VR. So what I've heard so far of PlayStation VR 2 sounds pretty good. It's connected now by one cord. It's not wireless, which is to me a huge disappointment. But if you want to be able to make use of the power of the PlayStation 5 to create a compelling VR environment, it's probably going to have to be corded. So generally, I feel 
pretty optimistic about PlayStation VR 2 as a product. However, I am extremely pessimistic when it comes to PlayStation VR 2 as a successful product financially because this thing is going to cost a lot, like 500 or more a lot. And while Sony has yet to announce the price or the release date for its upcoming HMD, I think when it does, a lot of people who are excited about it are going to have second thoughts. Square Enix is the king of unrealistic expectations for the sales of its games. There was once a Tomb Raider game that sold around 10 million units, and Square Enix said it was a huge disappointment financially. Well, the Japanese publisher is at it again, and this time it's declared that Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, quote, undershot our initial expectations, unquote. That statement comes from Yosuke Matsuda, who is the representative director at Square Enix. Yosuke and the publisher in general continue to have completely unrealistic expectations. And at the same time, it said during its Q3 financial results that the game is starting to make up for its slow start with sales and other growth. Quote, The HD games subsegment launched Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy in Q3. Despite strong reviews, the game's sales on launch undershot our initial expectations. Sales initiatives that we kicked off in November 2021 and continued into the new year have resulted in sales growth, and we intend to work to continue to expand sales to make up for the title's slow start. My first question is, why Why did it have a slow start? First of all, I do not remember seeing a single television commercial for Guardians of the Galaxy, the video game. Not one. I don't remember seeing a lot of digital marketing, whether on social media or gaming websites for the game. It feels like Square Enix had a couple mock reviews before the game came out, and it did well with the mock reviewers. And then they sent it to real reviewers, and they also really liked the game, and I feel like Square Enix just expected word of mouth and word from critics to carry the game to the sales that it expected. That's simply not how it works. Square Enix always says this, but this game in particular deserves better. It is an excellent game, and maybe it's partly the fault of people like me who maybe didn't express as well as I should have just how much I liked the game. To be fair, on Game Face, I gushed all over the game in almost every regard. I liked everything about it. I liked the story, I liked the writing, I thought it nailed the tone of Guardians of the Galaxy. It was a very pretty game. The combat was not great, but certainly not terrible, and more more than workable. But overall, it's a pretty great game. Now, the game does not include Chris Pratt, the actor who portrays Star-Lord in the films. And at this point, I'm wondering, despite what it's saying publicly... Square Enix may be regretting not plunking down the extra cash to get him involved. If there ever is a sequel, maybe it will reconsider. Bethesda today announced that it will shut down its official launcher in May, and all the processes that its launcher has handled in the past will now take place on Steam. The migration will start in April, and at that point, virtually everything will transfer over. This is the first big move Bethesda has made since being acquired by Microsoft. And I'm a little flummoxed over this because wouldn't you think 
that instead of becoming allies with Steam, it would instead transfer all this stuff over to the Microsoft Store. Perhaps this is an admission by Microsoft that its store sucks. (laughs) Because it does. Let's just be honest. Steam craps all over the Microsoft Store. Maybe it could also be that Microsoft is going to take a different tact with its store going forward. And maybe it will just be sort of a transaction facilitator instead of this thriving online gaming marketplace that up until now, I believe Microsoft wanted it to become. The official statement from Bethesda reads, you have plenty of time to plan and begin migrating your Bethesda.net library to your Steam account. The migration to Steam will include your game library and wallet, meaning you will not lose anything from your Bethesda.net account. So while this is puzzling, the Bethesda would ally with Valve instead of Microsoft for migrating all these accounts. There are millions of Bethesda accounts over to Steam instead of the Microsoft Store. Ultimately, I do think it's the right decision. All right, let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll tackle today's boss fight. Welcome to today's Boss Fight, where I tackle random topics that may, or may not be, related to video games. Recently, I have watched our subscriber count on YouTube dwindle. This has coincided with an increase in output on our YouTube channel. I think a lot of people who create content do not anticipate that the harder they work, And the more content that they create, the more it will turn people off. That is what I've faced with our YouTube channel for years now. This isn't actually a recent revelation. This is something that I've been dealing with for a while and has been bubbling under the surface for me for quite a while. In fact, you'll hear a little bit about this on today's Game Face. It will be published a little bit later. But I figured I would expand and extrapolate a little bit on it here on Good Morning Gaming. Because I don't talk about it much on Game Face. I just kind of mention it. The problem is that it's impossible to please everyone anymore. And it never has been possible to please everyone. That's an old adage that my grandfather used to share with me. You can't please everyone. There's always going to be someone who's angry. Blah, blah, blah. I get that. But we're not talking about a small fraction of people who become upset and change their behaviors. We're talking about chunks of the audience that do this. People who have one thing happen that they don't approve of or they don't like, and it's all or nothing for them. They take their ball and they go home. I can't tell you how frustrating it is to work as late as I do every night to provide content to our YouTube channel completely free and have people unsubscribe because of the work that I've done. Because instead of getting Pactor Factor a couple days a week and Game Face one day a week, now you're getting a piece of content every day. Oh, 
Can't do that. That's not what I expect. That's not what I expected from your YouTube channel. I am really sick of expectations. Really sick of them. In every walk of life. I I am so tired of having to live up to expectations. I have been bucking this for my entire life. The expectation was, when my parents got divorced, that I would just stay with the parent that I was with. That I would stay with them and graduate high school there with the people that I had grown up with from second grade until like the ninth grade, my lifelong friends. The expectation was I would just stay there and graduate with them and keep going to school. I said, no, I'm going to move with my other parent where the schools are a little better and I have more opportunity to succeed in my life. My old friends in my old school didn't understand it then. I think they understand it now. The expectation for me was, oh, he's a jock. He plays sports. And I was like, you know what? I've played sports my entire life, but I just discovered a skateboard. And I don't care anymore about team sports. I don't want some overbearing, overinvested adult screaming in my face every day over stuff that I didn't do. I'll be my own coach. I'll skate. And then I was in high school, at my new school. And I'm supposed to be trying to blend in and fit in. No, I didn't want to do that. That was the expectation. I didn't want to do that. I'm going to hang with the subculture. I'm going to hang with the skaters and the punks. And if I can't make a ton of friends in school, at this new school, that's okay. But that was the expectation. It was the expectation of my parent, who I just moved with. Oh, you had played sports the whole time with my ex-husband, and he got to go and watch you play sports, and that was something I was looking forward to, but now you do this other thing that nobody watches. There's no crowds. I have defied expectations my entire life. And so when people say to me, I expect this, I expect that, it drives me crazy. I've talked about this so many times on Game Face, about how people, when they look at a game and they say, that's not what I expected, so it sucks. This actually goes back all the way to my legendary discussion with Marcus Beer about Resident Evil 6 and how he contended that it was a bad Resident Evil game, and therefore the game was just bad, period. And my contention was, I agree, it's not a great Resident Evil game, but it's a pretty good action game. And therefore, it's just a pretty good action game. Again, ignoring expectations. And I believe expectation is what drives a lot of the awful activity online in general. But how can we change it? My mantra in life is, do no harm, take no shit. I'm never going to mess with you. I'm never going to harsh your mellow. But if you try to do it to me, I'm not going to sit there and take it. If everybody operated this way, no one would have to take no shit. I built Sifted for this very reason. I was getting older My tolerance for online jerks had basically reached rock bottom, and I didn't want to deal with them anymore. But I still loved what I was doing, and I knew, or at least I thought, there were plenty of other people like me. People who loved gaming, but were getting older and couldn't rationalize engaging with the maniacs anymore. So, I set out 
to build a haven for people like me. Sifted. And at first, it seemed like everyone was on board. People heard the messaging that we were going to have tough moderation, that we weren't going to suffer fools, that if you show up here and you act like an idiot, you're not going to last very long. It's written right in our terms of service. (laughs) You won't find too many terms of service that are more personal than ours because I had very specific goals with Sifted that I wanted to achieve. I wanted Sifted to be a place where female players could go and not feel threatened. I wanted Sifted to be a place where LGBTQ people could go and not feel threatened. I wanted Sifted to be a place where people like me could go who just aren't toxically masculine and feel like they're a part of the team. I wanted to create a safe haven online. And I failed. It's still here. But it's nowhere near what I dreamed it would become. We had a good first rush when the site first launched, when we had our beta, people were engaged. Like, go back through the site and look at, like, the first, I don't know, nine or ten months of the site. Every piece of content was getting a hundred or more likes, lots of comments. But slowly over time, people started realizing that I wasn't bullshitting. And if they acted like an idiot, they were going to get booted. And we had very, and we still have, very strict rules. Three strikes and you're out. But what happens is, the people, and and I'll say this, it did get rid of a lot of bad people. <laughs> I can go back and look through those comments, and there's a lot of people just arguing just for the sake of arguing, or because they have an ego, or whatever. Most of those people are gone. But unfortunately, what it left behind was either professional trolls or just not enough people in general. The professional trolls make it really difficult to create a great online community. Even as the leader of a site, I have limited opportunity to make the community exactly what I want it to be. Online miscreants are experts at skirting terms of service contracts. They're very good at being as awful as possible while being careful not to cross specific lines that will get them banned. I've been forced to allow people to remain on the site who I detest simply because they haven't technically broken the rules or because optics would discourage others from joining the community. If I can't stand behind my terms of service, then why should anyone else? So I have maintained the letter of the law here on Sifted. It to my own detriment at times and sometimes to the detriment of the site because it's allowed people to stay in the community who are toxic. People who never show up to talk about fun stuff on the site but only show up when they have something to complain about or they want to stir the pot and troll. Now, trolling technically is against our terms of service, but it's such a nebulous term, it's hard to ban people for it. And when you're sitting here as the leader of something, you start thinking about, okay, what happens if I ban this person? Are they going to go on social media and badmouth me or the site? The answer to that is yes. Yes. They will stalk you. Anytime you tweet something, they will jump in and call you an idiot. I've been through it. 
And this is after I defended these people, after everyone on the site wanted them gone. And I stood behind the terms of service and said, they have not broken the rules so as to be banned from the site. I lost good people from the Sifted community over this. It's an awful position to be in. So what is the answer? I don't know. It's one of the most helpless feelings I've ever experienced. And it's all the more frustrating when you think that you've spent so much time and money building something and it still doesn't feel like it's under your control. Unfortunately, as people who participate in this grand experiment called online communities, we're all trying to figure it out, but we're also so powerless. It's got to come from people that these people respect or are forced to respect. It's got to come from the parents. It's got to come from the upbringing. It's got to come from the family. It's got to come from those parents being engaged with what their kids are doing online because if they act this way and they keep getting away with it, they're going to keep doing it. And these habits, these attitudes, are formed at a very young age. It's the parent's job to nip it in the bud. And unfortunately, what we've found is that a lot of parents today, and I am not a parent, so I do want to tiptoe around this a little bit because I'm not an expert on this, obviously, if I don't have kids. But the parents have disengaged with their children. And they are allowing social media and pop culture to raise their kids instead. And so imagine you're a 13-year-old and you feel maybe like you're being left out, you're being left behind at school. Maybe you don't have a lot of extracurricular activities that you're doing and therefore maybe you don't have a lot of friends in school. They're desperate for attention. And that is so sad. And it seriously, it hurts my heart to think of 12 and 13-year-old kids that feel that way. It, it's awful. But they're getting attention by acting out. And that's why they keep acting out. And at the same time, you're like, okay, well, maybe these people need to be silenced. But it only makes them worse. Because once they had attention, and now they're not getting it anymore. I've seen it. When I've banned problem users from Sifted, they come after me. Some of them have come after me years later. Years later. They still harbor a grievance against me because they were tossed off a website because they were acting like jerks. I really feel like there's just this whole generation of people who have been raised by the internet. And the internet is the worst possible parent any kid could have. It's hard to find too many redeeming qualities the internet is going to teach someone. And if you're used to spending all your time on YouTube... You have even less positive influence. So while I don't have the answer to this, one thing I do want to say is that in general in life, letting something overwhelm you and just giving up is the worst thing that you can do. So I will continue to look critically at this and try to figure out how I can help in some way. I try to do the best I can. I have lots of nieces and nephews and I try 
to shape them because I'll admit their parents aren't really clued in to how the internet works or all the products that they're consuming or using, all the games that they're playing. Their parents have no clue about that stuff. So I do try to help and inform their parents, my brothers and sisters, about what's going on and what they're consuming and what they're doing online and what it means, what it means for them. At a certain point, it becomes too much, and even they tune out, listening to their brother try to tell them about this stuff. It is an uphill battle, and I feel like we're kind of on the cusp of no return. So if you're listening to this, one, I hope you understand how much I appreciate you, because if you are listening to this, you have made it through all of my filters, and you're still here, which means you're one of the good ones. The problem is finding other good ones. So I'm asking this question because I do not have the answer, but I do believe that if we do find the answer, it's going to take all of us working together. Thanks for listening to Good Morning Gaming. I appreciate every single one of you, and I mean it who listens to GMG. I'm Shane Satterfield, and you can do what the cool kids do and follow me on Twitter at Dinfire and follow Sifted at Sifted Games. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow, but until then, make sure you seize today, because there will never be another. Another.